Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Wyndham Garden Lafayette. From Chalo's Wine Market in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with creative consultant Aileen Bennett. It's business Acadiana style. Hi, I'm Aileen Bennett. Welcome to Out to Lunch. You're probably familiar with the saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. At the same time that that saying was coined in England, here in the United States, the sentiment was quite different. In 1790, the federal government passed the first Copyright Act, which made imitation illegal. We're still in the process of working out exactly what is imitation and what legally isn't. For example, George Rodrigues' famous Blue Dog. Rodrigues' Blue Dog is based on the Cajun folktale of the Loop Guru. If you grow up in Acadiana and you paint a blue dog, are you expressing your Cajun culture or are you ripping off George Rodrigues? That's the kind of question that's not just theoretical to George Rodrigues' son, Jacques. As an attorney, Jacques is specialist in intellectual property. He's also the executive director of the George Rodrigue Foundation of the Arts. Jacques, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me. The law firm Jones Walker is a major sponsor of Out to Lunch, so we thought we'd take advantage of that relationship and invite Michael Leachman to have lunch with us today. Michael is a partner at Jones Walker. He's a specialist patent attorney. Michael works with clients on patents and trademarks. He represents clients in federal and state courts in the areas of trademark infringement, unfair competition, and all kinds of trademark and intellectual property disputes in a wide range of fields, including science and technology. Michael, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me. Jacques, Blue Dog is everywhere. No one knows that better than you. You posted a photo online recently of a pile of iPhone cases with the Blue Dog design. You'd seized them after you discovered they were being sold illegally in China. In this case, the definition of illegal is that the image of the Blue Dog that was created by your father can't be used without the express permission of the current owners of the image who you represent. The reason for this is financial. The mass knockoff of blue dogs lessens the value of the legitimate ones that your dad drew with his own hand. But your dad and his heirs don't own the concept or the idea of the loop guru or the color blue or the image of a dog. So how do you determine what's a ripoff and what's simply someone else's genuine artistic expression? So right, yeah, you you can't control an idea. So the whole purpose of copyright law is to protect ideas once they've been fixed in a tangible medium of expression is how the law reads and so basically um, we don't own that idea of a blue dog but as soon as you've uh, painted one you do get uh, protections for that particular expression of what that blue dog looks like so the shape of the dog the way the ears um, are kind of drawn inside of them, the position of the eyes, uh, the, the, the yellow eyes on a blue background. So um, you also don't get protections of the dog pieces which, are, um, which, which come from nature. And so um, it's how the painting image and the image that dad created differs and is unique in all of the world and all of those pieces are protectable. So people should know that if there's a cheap print of a blue dog, a Rodrigue blue dog, then it's... Pretty much, um, but it does get complicated because uh, 
we do sell note cards. We have sold note cards in the past. So can I take a f- note card and frame it? You can. So but can I then sell it as a print? You, ca- you can't sell it as a print as long as you say it's a framed note card. I love it. It's going to be a you complicated could sell show. You one that you purchase. You can't make copies and distribute copies of what you purchased. Yeah, so there's this thing called the first sale doctrine. So if you've bought the piece, you can sell it. However, if you buy a book of ours and tear a page out, we argue that you are altering the character of the original. So the first sale doctrine does not apply. Can I sell it as a page from the book? No, because as soon as you rip that page out, you've created a derivative work. The idea being that it was sold as a collection, and so once you make it no longer a collection, you've changed the nature of the work. And so it comes down to the original rights a copyright owner gets under law, and one of those is is to create derivative work, which is changing the work in some manner. And so taking a page out, you know, it could be argued at least that that would be changing the collection to an individual piece, and therefore that is in violation of the copyright owner's rights under the law. I have the biggest grin on my face. It's not often I'm envious of other people's jobs, but all of this stuff just (laughs) makes me so excited. So Jacques, getting back to the original question though, like an example, a real world example would be someone painting a greyhound blue. Right. Would that be something that you would view as? It depends. Um, you know, you, you have to go through the factors. Um, you know, all law has, you know, several factors you go through. And so you, you ultimately look at the totality of the work and you see if one is really derivative of the other. And so, you know, no one has tried to paint a blue greyhound, but of course there has been things like Blue's Clues, um, where... Um, it is a completely it is a blue dog, but it looks completely different. The shape of the head, um, it's a cartoon. It moves around, whereas the you know dad's images are fixed. And so, I think that the Blues Clues image has nothing to do with our image. Although Viacom did approach us and wanted to do a cartoon with the blue dog, and we said no. So then that's when they created their own. So. The test under copyright law for infringement is, the the main test is access plus substantial similarity. So when a court is looking at whether or not something infringes, um, you know, access is going to be the first question. Did the accused infringer have access to the original work? And then you look at the similarity of the two works to determine whether or not it's similar enough that you can make a presumption that there was copy. And so I would think an example, if, if you just wanted to come up with an example for people to understand, if someone took a greyhound and painted it blue and put it on a white background, in all likelihood, sitting here independently, I'd say that's probably not an infringing copy. But if they took a blue dog painting and took the exact background that the original blue dog was in and, only and, sub- changed it to a and substituted it to a blue greyhound, then you're getting much closer to substantial similarity. Would you agree with that, Jacques? Yeah, getting in, closer in, at least in, in principle yeah and it's yeah. it's really hard because it it's hard to talk about infringement in theory because you really just need to see the two does intention images. matter I, I think subjectively it certainly does in the real world I mean as far as when you're looking at what a copyright owner is going to do in a certain situation if 
they view that there is an intentional copying, that that's going to be likely to trigger more aggressive action by the owner, just practically speaking. So, Jacques, how do you find all these things that are being sold on eBay all over the world or on different sites? Is it as simple as a Google alert, or do you have other ways to track across the Internet and the minute the name appears? So we, um, we do monitor uh, sites like eBay and Amazon uh, for infringement, uh, but we actually find out about most of it through our collectors. Uh, they know that we are vigorous um, protectors of our rights, and when they see things... And it's in their interest as well to course, stop it yeah, becoming... It could be at a pawn shop in Nevada. It could be overseas in China. Um, it could be them looking on the Internet, you know, looking to buy a, a print somewhere, and they see one that is doesn't look right. And so I've got kind of 10, 15 go-to collectors that are always looking out for us. Nice. And as soon as they let us know, then we go after it. And if it's... If it's online, um, it's pretty easy to take care of because of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, which you actually go after the website itself. So if a third party lists an infringing um, item on a website that you own, eBay, um, that eBay can be liable for copyright And they're pretty good at taking it and down. Yeah, they're... In 24 hours, it's usually taken yeah, There's down. a safe harbor provision under the law that gives the website owner time, a time period to take action. Um, and, you know, typically they're going to take action sooner rather than later because they frankly don't want to be in the middle of such a fight. Michael, I'm guessing with the rise of Shark Tank and everybody knows what a patent is and people ask those questions, do you get people approaching you all of the time with, let's say, ideas that you might want to tell them aren't fantastic? Uh, yes, uh, that is is something that we, as patent attorneys, deal with on a regular basis of sometimes having to tell people that it's not the greatest idea ever. Because you're but not think, just doing a legal contract, you're actually going to prepare and file this application and... I think the biggest misconception that uh, a lot of people have that have not gone through the patent process is really understanding that is a long, lengthy process where there are no clear-cut answers at the instantaneous time that you might see it on TV where you believe that if you ask a patent attorney, is this patentable, that you're actually going to get an answer immediately. The fact of the matter is is that usually when someone comes to me with an idea that they think that, that is patentable, we have to do some due diligence to determine what else is already out there because Lord knows I, as an individual, don't know what else has been developed and already filed for patent protection at the patent office. That's, there's millions of applications and patents that have been filed. And um, to file a patent, it has to be new and useful and non-obvious. Correct. So those are the primary requirements for patentability, and that's what the patent office themselves are going to look at when judging your application. So typically, as a patent attorney, when we're working with a new client that has something they think is patentable, we're going to try to get answers to those questions before we, the client spends a significant amount of money actually preparing the application, which means we're going to do things like a prior art search, a patentability study, whereby we, do, we more or less simulate what the patent office is going to do, which is we search the patent office records to see what's already out there. So we can just go online and get a trademark or a patent. I can apply myself and fill in all those forms. Why would I go to you to do it instead? So when it comes to 
So patents and trademarks are two different animals. Yes. So if we're going to stick with patents, uh, patents, while someone certainly can file a patent application on their own, just like you can go into court and represent yourself in a bankruptcy proceeding or a divorce proceeding or any other proceeding where you're a party to it, it's just, is that a good idea? It's like doing surgery on yourself as well. You can do it, but it's not a good idea. Um, when it comes to patent applications, there are numerous requirements that, are, that you must meet in order for the application to pass muster, just checking the boxes of formalities. In addition, on top of that, there are numerous legal requirements that most lay people aren't aware of, and that's where an attorney's expertise comes into play. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Aileen Bennett. I'm talking with Michael Leachman from Jones Walker and Jacques Rodrigue from the George Rodrigue Foundation. Jacques, a lot of the things that are made, like the iPhone cases, and I believe some miniature cows were made a few years back, um, you get to seize them. Do they actually get delivered to your office? They belong to you then? Yes. So um, usually, you know, you, when you find infringement, um, you know, the courts is, is something you really don't want to mess with, hopefully. And so you, you generally don't come out swinging with a really nasty letter. You try to settle amicably and keep it as simple as possible. Um, but sometimes, um, you know, you, you'll work with an infringer who um, you have to get more aggressive with. But, but generally speaking, um, you come to a resolution and say, you know, I'm not going to hold you to, you know, statutory damages and all these monetary issues as long as you just stop your infringing activity. Because for us and for Dad, it was always... You know, he wanted to be in control of his artwork and how it was presented to the public. Michael, we live in a world where, I mean, I'm, I'm a designer. I work with a lot of brands in very early stages. And when I design a new logo, I do as much as I can to search everywhere. Where should we be looking to make sure it doesn't already exist? And how should we always have someone like you looking over every design we do? What do designers do these days? So it, it comes down when we're talking, so we're talking about trademarks now. Yes. Brands. Yes. And so we, Which is a symbol or a name used to kind of distinguish what you do. Correct. And we have to first break it down into, are we talking about something that's design-oriented or something that's a word? Um, when it comes, most companies have, might have both. So you have McDonald's and you have the Golden Arch. Um, in both instances, as attorneys, we typically use some third-party providers that do searches for us just because... You know, economically, that's the most efficient approach where they search the USPTO database and other state databases as well as the Internet to try to locate any existing third-party use of a similar word or a similar design. Uh, where attorneys come into play is helping advise clients on whether or not there's a likelihood of confusion between the proposed brand that our client wants to move forward with and any pre-existing marks that already exist and are being used. And that likelihood of confusion test is something that is, there's a lot of gray areas in it, but nevertheless is a legal test that courts apply, as well as the trademark office applies when examining new applications. And so, you know, the first step is yes, you do need to do a search, and it is something that you can try to do yourself, but ultimately you're gonna want an attorney to give you advice on the likelihood of confusion issue. Because it is a legal test, and there are a lot of nuances uh, associated with it as far as determining whether or not there's going to be any infringement issues. And it's getting harder and harder. So what if 
What if you have a name similar to a company? What if my name is McDonald's? Can I use that as long as I'm not making burgers? So I, I like to use an example um, that you know people see uh, on a regular basis is Pandora Radio and Pandora Jewelry Store. So there's an example of two different companies using the same exact name but selling different products. Uh, the reason why the law allows that to happen is because the likelihood of confusion test takes into account not only the similarity of the marks themselves, but also the similarity of the products that are being sold under the brand. So if you have similar marks, but the products being sold by the two different companies are very different, uh, the law typically will say consumers are able to differentiate between the two companies and not think that they're associated with one another, and therefore there's no likelihood of confusion, therefore no issues. But when it comes to very famous trademarks, such as, let's use Exxon for example, or even you know Apple, given how big it's, it's gotten, um, you run into issues of those marks have become so, so famous that if I sell anything using Apple as my brand, that consumers would start mistakenly assuming that I'm somehow associated or approved by Apple, Inc., and therefore that would be a situation, even though I sell a completely different product, because the marks are similar and the senior brand is so famous, I could get in trouble. Jacques and Michael, this is part of the show that we call Your Brother-in-Law. You're sitting at your desk answering some email when your phone rings. It's your brother-in-law. Normally he only calls when he's got a tip on a horse and he thinks you might want to kick in a few dollars for the win, but this time it's different. This time he has a business proposition. Jacques, your brother-in-law has a great idea for expanding the Blue Dog brand. He says you've successfully moved into food, you're in visual arts, so what's left? Music. The basis of all modern music from rock, rock to Zydeco is the blues, so why not Blues Dog? Blues Dog can be a record label, an artist management company, a streaming service. It can grow in any direction the business music... Sorry. Blue Dog can be a record label, an artist management company, a streaming service. It can grow in any direction the music business goes. Your brother-in-law is prepared to quit his day job and head up the Blues Dog division of the Rodrigue Empire. What do you tell him? Is he on to something? My brother-in-laws are lucky that I like them a lot. (laughs) Um, This is a fictitious brother-in-law. But even if my real brother-in-laws, we'd probably go get a drink and then just calmly tell them that you know, it's, it's not something that should be part of dad's legacy. I mean, that's, that's the question that we ask no matter what we do, whether it's with you the rest. You ask yourself, what would dad have done? What would dad have done? And also, um, how does this help or hurt the legacy? And how does this affect and impact dad's position in the art world and the value of his paintings? And so I can't imagine a situation where owning a Blue Dog record label helps to, um, you know, elevate dad's artwork at all in the, in the eyes of museums, in the eyes of curators and scholars. Um, so it would be a, a hard pass on that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, your brother-in-law says he's got a way for the two of you to make a fortune. Everybody in the world has a great idea for an invention of some sort. Most people never do anything about it because it's complicated and expensive. But what if it wasn't? What if there was a simple, cheap way to get a legal opinion from a patent attorney, like an app? The app could be called My Big Idea. You have to pay $10 to file an idea. Your brother-in-law will look through, through all the ideas. If an idea looks stupid, the person gets $7 refunded. If anything looks good, bingo, you've got a client. 
The business model here is your brother-in-law gets three bucks from everyone in the world with a stupid idea, and you get an endless number of potential clients. What do you tell your brother-in-law? Is he onto something here? <laughs> well, uh, I tell him that he's already been beaten to the punch. We already have invention submission corporations such as Invent Health that you see on TV commercials. And if you actually go to the United States Patent and Trademark Office website, there's an entire page and a couple of pages dedicated to all the complaints that have been filed against these types of companies. But do they give you your money back if it's a terrible idea? They, these companies typically flame out and are investigated and have probably criminal charges associated with running them just because they're fraudulent. <laughs> There's no simple solution to when it comes to patent protection of ideas because every idea poses different issues and different obstacles to getting the idea translated from the idea stage to the patented stage to a product that actually is making money. And uh, one of the big problems that people have when they're novices when it comes to the patent system is believing that just because they get a patent, even if, let's assume they have a good idea, they file for patent protection and get a patent, what then? And I always ask people when they come to me and they're independent inventors and they're paying money out of their own bank accounts, this isn't a, an established business, this is being funded by money that otherwise could go to paying their mortgage or paying for their kids' school, I always say, if you get a patent, then what? And that's what I would say to my brother-in-law. If we're taking in this money and taking in these ideas, we're really doing a disservice to these people because they're spending money on something that unless they've thought about the big picture business plan of how I'm actually going to monetize this patent, what are they really doing? Because the idea is the easy bit really in business. Because there's mailbox money just doesn't show up just because you get a patent. There still has to be effort made on the back end and patent is the first step and sometimes it's the very very important step. If you actually have a business plan where you can market and sell a product or sell it like you see on Shark Tank where there's investments being happening. Sometimes you have to have a patent to get those investment dollars and to bring it to the next level. Often on Shark Tank they'll say the patent pend is patent pending and that really just means they've applied. It doesn't mean anything else, right? Right. And the reason they, they're asking that question is because when it comes to patents there's timelines that are important. So if someone comes up with a new product and starts selling it, if they're not conscious of the fact that the patent system requires them to file for patent protection within one year of their first public disclosure of their invention, they can be forever barred from ever getting a patent. And if they, can, if they do not get a patent on this technology, that means other companies and other individuals can copy it and practice the technology And as well. the whole thing's remarkably slow. I know you, even for a trademark, I went through the process recently, and the first letter you get back says someone will look at this within six months. Yeah. You and know, and it's, it's, yeah, it blows my mind. And for a trademark and patents, I mean, there's, it's even you can worse. file a patent application, it could be two years before you hear anything. Wow. But you need to file that application before, generally we advise file a patent application before the first public disclosure of your invention. And the reason why Shark Tank, the sharks on Shark Tank are, are interested in patent protection is because they know that's the only thing that keeps the really big companies that already have, you know, chains of distribution and manufacturing from coming in and just copying your product and Yeah, because you've you also just announced the idea to the world at that point. Yes, yes. And they beat you to the market. The only tool you have to compete against bigger companies that already have advantages over you is to have that patent protection. 
and that's why you know the the role of the attorney in this is so important and it's having someone with experience that under has been through this process and seen you know the, the best thing an attorney does is think about everything that can go wrong yes <laughs> and they've seen it and they understand what the pitfalls are and they can help you avoid those pitfalls and so, i know working with jones walker you know it's a saying over there is a lot is uh you know if you pay peanuts you get monkeys and so it it, it takes a really qualified person and sometimes it just is a little more expensive if you want someone really qualified but you know you're protected there's probably nothing more iconic from Acadiana that has a wider reach around the world than George Rodrigue's Blue Dog. In the world of business, there's probably nothing more difficult to get your head around than the complex and ever-changing world of patents, trademarks, copyrights and intellectual property. Jacques and Michael, we all know a lot more about intellectual property and Blue Dog than we did 30 minutes ago. This has been fun and informative. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. You're welcome. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Jacques Rodrigue, Executive Director of the George Rodrigue Foundation of the Arts and the owner of the Blue Dog Cafe, and Michael Leachman, Specialist Intellectual Property Attorney from the law firm of Jones Walker. You can find out more about Jacques, Blue Dog, Jones Walker and Michael by following the links on our websites, krvs.org and itsacadiana.com. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Morell. Our researchers are Anne Christian and Ali Coates. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on our website, itsacadiana.com, and on our It's Acadiana Facebook page and on Instagram. These photos were taken by Lucius A. Fontenot. You can find out more about Lucius at lafphoto.com. You can get this show and past shows as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify. And you can find all of our podcasts at itsacadiana.com. You can keep up with us between shows on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You'll find those links on our website, itsacadiana.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. I'm Aileen Bennett. Thanks for joining me today. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Marcello's Wine Market Cafe on Calice Saloon in Lafayette. Marcello's is open for lunch Monday through Friday and dinner Monday through Saturday, serving fine Italian cuisine with a full range of fine wines. The Out to Lunch Acadiana theme music, Encore Monsieur, Nice Guy, is written by Mitchell Foreman and performed by Mitchell Foreman and Andre Michaud. Out to Lunch Acadiana business consultants are Pete Prados from Innovate Acadiana and Destin Ortego from The Opportunity Machine. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Support for Out to Lunch Acadiana comes from the Wyndham Garden Lafayette, located off Pinhook near Cali Saloon. Wyndham Garden Lafayette is a pet and family-friendly hotel with reception space for large and intimate events, free parking, free Wi-Fi, and a free shuttle within three miles that includes the airport and downtown restaurants. <laughs>